0: to the Podlets Podcast, a weekly show that explores cloud-native one buzzword at a time. Each week, experts in the field will discuss and contrast distributed systems concepts, practices, trade-offs, and lessons learned to help you on your cloud-native journey. This space moves fast, and we shouldn't reinvent the wheel. If you're an engineer, operator, or technically-minded decision-maker, this podcast is for you.
1: Welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm Nicholas Lane. I'm a cloud native architect. What do you work
2: th- for, Nicholas?
1: i work worked for VMware, formerly of Heptio.
2: We're all VMware, formerly of Heptio, aren't we?
1: Yes. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: That is correct. It just happened that way. <laughs> Nick, why don't you tell us how you got into this uh, space?
1: Okay. So I originally got into like the cloud native realm, working for Red Hat as a consultant. At the time I was doing like OpenShift consultancy. And then my boss, Paul, Paul London, left Red Hat and I decided to follow him to CoreOS where I met Duffy and Josh. And we were on the field engineering team there and the uh, sales engineering team. And then from there, I found myself at Heptio and now at VMware. Duffy, how about you? So my name is Duffy Cooley. I'm also a cloud native architect at VMware.
3: Also recently Heptio and CoreOS. I've been working in technologies like cloud native for quite a few years now. I kind of started my journey moving from virtual machines into containers with mesos i spent some time working on mesos and and actually worked with a team of really smart individuals to try and develop an api in front of that crazy mesos thing and then we realized wow you know like why are we doing this there is one it's called kubernetes we should we should jump on that and so that's that's kind of the direction my my time with containerization and cloud-native stuff has taken. How about you, Josh?
4: So, hey, I'm Josh. I, similar to Duffy and Nicholas, came from CoreOS and then to Heptio and then eventually to VMware. actually got my start in the middleware business, oddly enough, uh, where we worked on the uh, egregious spaghetti box or the ESB, as it's formally known. Uh, <laughs> and I got to see over time kind of how folks were doing a lot of these I guess more legacy kind of monolithic applications, and that sparked my interest into learning a bit about some of the cloud native things that were going on. And at the time, CoreOS was kind of at the forefront of that. So it was a natural progression based on my interests, and have been had a really good time working at Hapdia with a lot of the folks that are on this call right now. And Chris, you want to give us an intro?
0: Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Chris Nova. I've been SRE DevOps infrastructure for About a decade now, Uh, I used to live in Boulder, Colorado. I came out of a couple startups there. I worked at SolidFire, we went into NetApp. So I used to work on the Linux kernel there some. Then I was at Deas for a while when I first started contributing to Kubernetes. We got bought by Microsoft, left Microsoft, the Azure team. I was working on the original managed Kubernetes there, left that team, joined up with Heptio, met all of these fabulous folks. And uh, I think I like wrote a book and I've been doing a lot of public speaking and some other junk along the way. But yeah, hi.
2: What about you, Carlicia? All right. So I think it's really interesting that all the guys are lined up on one column and the girls on another column.
3: (laughs) We should have broken it it up more.
2: So I am a developer and have always been a developer. I, before joining Haptio, I was working for Fastly, which is a, a CDN company. And they're doing helping them build uh, the latest generation of their TLS management system. And at some point during my stay there, Kevin Stewart was posting on Twitter, joined HapTo. And at this point, HapTo was about, I don't know, between six months and a year old. And I saw those tweets go by. And I'm like, Oh, that sounds interesting, but I'm happy where I am. And I have a very good friend, Bill Kennedy actually saw those tweets, and he kept saying to me, "You should apply, you should apply because they are great people, they do great things. Kubernetes is so hot, and i'm like i I'm, I'm happy where I am so uh so eventually, I contacted Kevin, and he also said yeah, I, that would be a perfect match and i uh, two months later, I decided to apply and and the people are amazing, and uh, I did thank you Kubernetes was really hot, but my main Decision-making went towards two things. The people were amazing, and some people who are, were working there I already knew from previous opportunities, and some of the people that I knew, I mean, I, I love everyone. And the other thing was that it was an opportunity for me to work with open source. I definitely could not pass that up, and I could not be happier to have made that decision. And now with VMware acquiring hapto like everybody here, I'm a VMware. And still happy. So so has everybody here contributed to open source before?
1: Yep, I have.
2: What's everybody's favorite
0: project they've worked on?
1: That's an interesting question. From a kind of a business aspect, I really like DEX. DEX is a identity provider or like a middleware for identity provider. Like it provides an OIDC endpoint for multiple different identity providers. So you can absorb them into Kubernetes. Since Kubernetes only has an OIDC, it only accepts OIDC JOT tokens for authentication, that functionality that Dex provides is probably my favorite thing. Although, if I'm going to be truly honest, I think right now the thing that I'm the most excited about working on is my own project, which is starting to join, like me joining into my interest in doing chaos engineering. What about you guys? What's your favorite? I
0: I understood some of those words.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Those are the things that we'll touch on on different episodes.
0: Yeah. I worked on FreeBSD for a while. And that was like my first welcome to open source. And I mean, that was like back in the the olden days of IRC clients and like writing C. And I had a lot of fun and still I'm really close with a lot of the folks in the FreeBSD community. So that always kind of has a special place in my heart, I think, just as like my first experience of like, oh, this is how you work on a team and you work collaboratively together and it's okay to kind of fail in the open. Yes. What about you, Josh?
4: I worked on a project at CoreOS, uh, well, a project that's still out there called ALB Ingress Controller, and it was a way to bring the AWS ALBs, which are just layer seven load balancers, and take the Kubernetes API Ingress, attach those two together so that the ALB could serve Ingress. And the reason that it was the most interesting, technology aside, is just it went from something that we started, just myself and a, a colleague, and eventually, kind of gained community adoption. And we had to go through the process of it just being us two worrying about our concerns to having to bring on a large community that had their own business requirements and needs and having to say no at times and having to encourage individuals to contribute when they had ideas and issues because we didn't have the bandwidth to solve all those problems. So it was interesting, not necessarily from a technical standpoint, but just to see what it actually means when something starts to gain traction. So that was really cool. Yeah. How about you, Duffy? So I find
3: I've worked on a number of projects, but I find that generally where I fit into the ecosystem is is basically kind of helping other people adopt open source technologies. So I spent quite a bit of my time kind of working on OpenStack, and quite a bit of my uh, I spent some time working on Open vSwitch. And recently in Kubernetes. But generally speaking, I, I haven't found myself to be much of a contributor to of code to those projects per se, but more like more like my work is just enabling people to adopt those technologies because I understand the breadth of the project more than kind of the detail of some particular aspect. Lately I've been spending more I've been spending some time working more on the SIG network and kind of SIG cluster lifecycle stuff. So some of the projects that have really caught my interest are things like Kind, which is Kubernetes and Docker and working on KubeADM itself, just making sure that we don't miss anything obvious in the way that KubeADM uh, is being used to manage the infrastructure again.
2: Okay. What about you, Carlicia? I realized I didn't mention what I'm working on at VMware, and that is coincidentally the project, the open source project that uh, is my favorite. <laughs> I didn't have a, lot, a ton of experience with open source, just minor contributions here and there before this uh, project. And so I'm working with Valero, It's a disaster recovery tool for Kubernetes. Like I said, it's open source. And we're coming up to version one pretty soon. And the other maintainers are amazing, super knowledgeable, and very experienced, mature. So I have such a joy to work with them. My favorite.
1: That's awesome. So should we get into
3: the concept of cloud native? Start talking about kind of like what we each think of this sort of thing? Seems like a pretty loaded topic. There are a lot of people who think of cloud native as... Sort of just kind of a generic term. We should probably try and nail it down here.
2: I'm excited for this one. So yeah. maybe we should talk about what this podcast show is going to be?
1: Sure. Yeah. Totally. This is our
2: first episode.
1: So Carlicia, why don't you tell us a little bit about the podcast?
2: I will be glad to. So the idea that we had was to have a show where we can discuss cloud-native concepts. But as opposed to talking about particular tools or particular projects, we are going to aim to talk about the concepts themselves and approach it from the perspective of a distributed system idea or issue or concept or a cloud-native concept. And from there, we can talk about what really is this problem what kind of people or companies have this problem? What usually are the solutions? What are the way, alternative ways to solve this problem? And, and then we can talk about tools that are out there that people can use. But I don't think there is a show that, that approaches things from this angle. And I'm really excited about bringing this to the community. So it's, it's almost like
0: TGIK, but kind of turned inside out or like flipped around, where TGIK, we do tools first and we talk about like what exactly is this tool and how do you use it but i think this one we're we're spinning that around and we're saying no let's let's pick a broader idea and then let's explore all the different possibilities with this broader idea
2: Yeah, yeah i would say so
4: and from the field standpoint i think this is something we oftentimes run into with people who are just getting started with larger projects like Kubernetes, perhaps, or, or anything really, where a lot of times they hear something like the word Istio come out or, or some technology, and oftentimes the why behind it isn't really considered up front. It's just this tool exists, it's being talked about. Clearly, we need to start looking at it, but really diving into the concepts and the why behind it hopefully will bring some light to a lot of these things that we're all talking about day to day.
2: Yeah, really focusing on the what and the why. The how is secondary. That's what my vision of this show is. I like it.
1: And that's something that really excites me because there are a lot of these concepts that I talk about in my day-to-day life, but some of them I don't actually think that I understand pretty well. It's kind of like those words that you've heard a million times, so you know how to use them, but you don't actually know the definition of them.
2: Well, I'm super glad to hear you say that, Mister, because as a developer and meaning not not a system, not having a sysadmin background, uh, of course I did sysadmin things as a developer, but not like it wasn't my day-to-day thing ever. When I started working with the Kubernetes, a lot of things I didn't quite grasp. And that's a super understatement. (laughs) And I noticed that, I mean, I can ask questions, uh, no problem. I will dig through and find out and learn. But the problem is that in talking to experts, a lot of the time when I, when people, I think, but let me talk about myself. A lot of the time with that, when I ask a question, the experts jump right to the how. So what is this? Oh, this is how you do it. But I don't know what this is. It's just like back off a little bit, mm-hmm. right back up. I don't know what this is. Why is this doing this? I don't know. So if you tell me the how before I understand what that even is, I'm going to forget. That's mm-hmm. what's going to happen. I mean, it's great. You're trying to make an effort and show me the how to do something. But if I don't understand, this is personal, like my, the way I learn. I need to understand the how first. So that's mm-hmm. this is why I'm so excited about this show it's going to be awesome yeah, yeah this is what we're going to talk about
3: yeah I agree this is definitely one of the things that excites me about this topic as well is that like I find my secret superpower is troubleshooting and that means that I can actually understand what the expected Relationships between things should do right, rather than trying to figure out and without like, really digging into the actual problem of stuff and like what and how and how people were going or the people who were developing the code were trying to actually solve it or or thought about it. It's hard to get to the point where you fully understand that that that, that distributed system. And so I think this is a great place to start. And the other thing I'll say is that like I I firmly believe that you can't uh, that you don't understand a thing if you can't teach it. And so. Uh, this podcast for me is about is about that. Let's bring up all the questions and, you know, we should enable our audience to actually ask us questions somehow and get to a place where we can get as many perspectives on a problem as we can, such that we can really kind of dig into the detail of what the problem is before we ever talk about how to solve it. Good stuff.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So speaking
0: of um, a feedback loop from our audience and, and taking the problem first and then solutioning second, how do we plan on interacting with our audience? Like, do we want to maybe start a GitHub repo, or what are we thinking?
1: I think a GitHub repo makes a lot of sense. I also wouldn't mind doing some, you know, social media malarkey. You know, maybe having like a Twitter account that we run or something like that, where people can ask questions too.
2: Yes, yes, to all of that. Yeah, having an issue list that in the repo that people can just add uh, comments, praises, thank you, <laughs> questions, uh, suggestions for for concepts to talk about. It's like, hey, I have no clue what this means. Can you all talk about it? And yeah, we'll talk about it. So, And Twitter, yes, interact with us on Twitter. I believe our Twitter handle is TheKubelets. Oh, we already have one, nice. Yeah,
1: see, I'm, I'm learning something new already. <laughs> we yeah. have a
2: Twitter. And we already have, I thought you were all joking. We have the, 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 the Kubernetes repo. We have a GitHub repo called. Oh, perfect. Hab2 slash Cubelets.
3: Okay. Uh, and the other thing I, I like that we do in TGIK is this HackMD thing, although I'm trying to figure out like how we could really make that work for us in a, a show that's recorded every week like this one. And I, I think maybe what we could do is have it so that when people can listen to the recording, they can go to the HackMD document, put questions in or comments around things that they would like to hear more about, or maybe share their perspectives about these topics. And maybe like in the following week, we could just kind of go back and review what came in during that during that period of time or during the next session.
0: Yeah. So maybe we're, we're merging the hack and D on the next recording. Yeah. Okay. I like it.
1: Josh, you have any thoughts, you know,
4: friendster, MySpace, <laughs> anything like that? No, I think we could pass on MySpace for now, but everything <laughs> else sounds great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Do we want to get into the uh, meat of the episode? Yeah. Our, our true topic. <laughs> what does cloud native mean to all of us? And uh, Chris, I'm kind of interested to hear your thoughts on this. You oh. you might have written a book about this.
0: <laughs> so I, I co-authored a book called Cloud Native Infrastructure, which it means a lot of things to a lot of people. It's kind of what it, it's one of those umbrella terms like DevOps. Like you, it's kind of up to you to interpret it. But I think in the past couple of years of working in the cloud native space and working directly with the CNCF as a CNCF ambassador, uh, Cloud Native Computing Foundation, they're like the the open source, nonprofit folks behind this term cloud-native, I think the best definition I've been able to come up with is when you're designing software and you start your main function to be built around the cloud or to be built around what the cloud enables us to do and the services a cloud could offer you, that is when you start to look at cloud-native engineering. And I think all cloud-native infrastructure is, it's designing software that manages and mutates infrastructure in that same way. And I think the sort of underlying theme here is we're no longer like catting configuration to disk and doing like system D restarts. Now we're just sending, you know, HTTPS API requests and getting uh, messages back. And hopefully if the cloud has done what we expect it to do, you know, that, that broadcasts some sort of broader change. And as software engineers, we can like count on those guarantees to design our software around. But I really think that you need to understand that it's starting with the main function first and completely engineering your app around these new ideas and these new paradigms and not necessarily like a migration of a non-cloud-native app that you, I mean, you technically could go through and do it. Sure, we've seen a lot of people do it, but I I don't think that's technically cloud-native. That's like cloud alien. Yeah, I don't know. That's just my thought.
3: Are you saying that like cloud-native... Approach is a greenfield approach generally. Like the, to be a cloud native application, you're gonna you're gonna take that into account in like the DNA of your
0: application. Right,
2: that's exactly what I'm saying. It's interesting that Nova said uh, cloud mentioned cloud alien because that uh, plays into the way I would describe the meaning of cloud native. I mean, what it is, I think Nova described it beautifully, and it's a, a lot of um, it really shows her know how. For me, I, if I have to describe it, I will just parrot things that I have read, including her book. <laughs> but what it means to me, what it means really is, uh, I'm going to use a metaphor to explain what it means to me. I am, given my accent, I'm obviously not uh, an American born and I'm a foreigner. So, but, I, but although I do speak English pretty well, but I'm not native. English is not my native tongue. So I speak English really well, but there are certain hiccups that I'm going to have every once in a while. There are things that I'm not going to know what to say or it's going to take me a bit long to to remember. And um, I rarely run into not understanding something in English, but it happens sometimes. And that's the same with a cloud-native application. It might, uh, if if it hasn't been built to run on, on cloud-native platforms and systems, you can migrate a, 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 an application to a cloud-native environment, but it's not going to fully utilize the environment like a native app would. So that's my take. Cloud immigrant. Cloud immigrant. is a na- cloud, cloud alien. Yeah. <laughs> what did you say? Cloud native alien? Right. Or cloud well, native a- immigrants, yeah
4: on that point i'd be curious if you all feel like there is a need to discern the notion of like cloud native infrastructure or platforms than the notion of cloud native apps themselves and the, where i'm going with this it's funny hearing kind of the greenfield thing and kind of what you said are carly said with the immigration uh, if you will notion like oftentimes you see these very like cloud native platforms things be them like kubernetes or even mesos or whatever it might be And then you see the applications themselves. And some people are using these platforms that are cloud-native to be kind of like a forcing function to make a lot of their legacy stuff adopt more cloud-native principles, right? Um, And there's kind of this push and pull. It's like, do I make my app more cloud-native? Do I make my infrastructure more cloud-native? Do I do them both at the same time? Be curious what your thoughts are on that or if that resonates with you at all.
0: I've got a response here if I can jump in. (laughs) of course, Nova with opinions, who would have thought? And I think kind of what I'm hearing here, uh, Josh, is, you know, as we're, we're using these cloud native platforms, we're sort of forcing the hand of our engineers. So in a world where we may be used to just send this blind DNS request out, so whatever, and we would sort of be like, uh, ignorant of where that was going. Now in the cloud native world, we know there's this specific DNS implementation that we can count on, and it has this feature set that we can, you know, guarantee our software around. So I think It's a little bit of both. And I think that there is definitely an art to like understanding. Yes, this is a good idea to do both applications and infrastructure. And I think that's where you get into this sort of what it means to be a cloud native engineer. And it's just like in the same traditional legacy infrastructure stack, like there's going to be good engineering choices you can make, and there's going to be bad ones. And there's going to be different schools of thought over do I go minimalist? Do I go uh, all in at once? Like, what does that mean? And I think we're seeing a lot of folks try a lot of different patterns here. And I think there's pros and cons. To both.
2: And do you want to talk about those pros and cons? Do you see a patterns that are more successful for some kinds of company versus others?
0: I mean, I think going back to the greenfield thing that we were talking about earlier, I think if you are lucky enough to build out a greenfield application, you're able to bake in greenfield infrastructure management into that as well. And that's where you get these really interesting hybrid applications, just like Kubernetes, that span the course of infrastructure and application. Like if we were to go into Kubernetes and say, I want, you know, I wanted to define a service of type load balancer, it's actually going to go and create a load balancer for you and actually mutate that underlying infrastructure. And the only way we were able to get that power and get that paradigm is because on day one, we said we're gonna do that as software engineers. You know, taking an infrastructure where you were sort of hidden behind the firewall or hidden behind the load balancer in the past, uh, the software would have no way to reason about it. It was sort of blind and controlled. Greenfield really is gonna make or break your ability to to even mutate the infrastructure layers.
1: And I think that's a good uh, distinction to make because uh, something that I've been seeing in the field a lot is that the users will do cloud native practices, but they'll use a tool to do the cloud native for them, right? So they'll use something along the lines of like HashiCorp's Terraform to create the VMs and the load balancers for them. And it's something I think that people forget about is that the application themselves can ask for these resources as well. Like Terraform is just using an API and your code can use an API too, the same API in fact. And I think that's an an important distinction. It forces the developer to kind of think a little bit like a sysadmin sometimes. And I, I think that's a good like melding of the the dev and operations into this new word. And regrettably that word doesn't exist right now.
0: I mean, that word can be cloud native.
1: Cloud native to me kind of breaks down into,
3: into a, a different set of topics as well. It's like, I remember seeing a talk by Brandon Phillips a few years ago And in his talk, he was describing, he had some numbers up on his screen, and he was kind of talking about the fact that, like, we were going to quickly kind of become overwhelmed by the desire to continue to develop and put out more applications for our users. His point was that, like, every day, there's, like, another, like, 10,000 new users of the Internet, new consumers that are showing up on the Internet, right? And there, globally, I think it's something to the tune of about 350,000 of the people in this room, right? People who understand infrastructure, people who understand how you know, how to interact with like applications or to build them, those sorts of things. There really aren't a lot of people who are in that space today, right? We're surrounded by them all the time, but there really just globally aren't that many. And this point is that like, if we don't radically change the way that we think about the development and the deployment and the management of all of these applications that we're we're looking at today, we're going to quickly kind of be overrun, right? Because there aren't going to be enough people on the planet to solve that problem without thinking about the problem in a fundamentally different way. And and for me, that's kind of like where the cloud native piece comes in. So this, with that comes a set of primitives, right? Like you need some way to automate or to write software that will manage other software. You need the ability to manage the life cycle of that software in a, in, a, in a resilient way that can be managed. And there are lots of platforms out there that thought about this problem, right? Like there are things like Mesos, there are things like Kubernetes. There's a number of different shots on goal here. Like there are lots of things that have really tried to think about that problem in a fundamentally different way. But I think that those primitives that like, you know, being able to actually manage life the life cycle of software, being able to think about packaging that software in such a way that it can be truly portable, the idea that you have some api abstraction that brings again that portability such that you can make use of resources that may not be hosted on your infrastructure on your own personal infrastructure but also in the cloud like how do we actually make that api contract so complete that you can just take that application anywhere these are all part of kind of that that cloud native definition in my opinion so yeah. this is
0: this is so fascinating because, like, the human race totally already learned this lesson with the Linux kernel in the yep. 90s, right? We had all these hardware manufacturers coming out and building all these different hardware components with different interfaces. And somebody said, hey, you know what? There's a lot of noise going on here. We should standardize these and build a contract. And that contract then implemented control loops just like in Kubernetes and in Mesos. And poof, we have the Linux kernel now, and it's like we're just distributed Linux kernel version 2.0, and the human race is here repeating itself all over again.
1: Yep. Yeah, but it seems like the uh, kind of the blast radius of Linux kernel 2.0 is significantly higher than uh, the Linux kernel itself. Not to, I was that made it sound like I was like poo pooing what you were saying. It was like <laughs> it's more like we're learning the same lesson, but at a grander scale now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really elegant way of
1: putting it. But you do raise a good point. Like, you
3: know, if you are embracing like a cloud native sort of infrastructure, remember that little changes are big changes, right? Because you're thinking about you're you're thinking about managing the lifecycle of a thousand applications now, right? Like if you're going full on cloud native, you're thinking about operating at scale as kind of a byproduct of that. And so, you know, little changes that you might be able to make to your laptop are now big changes that are going to affect a fleet of a thousand machines, right? So yeah. mm-hmm.
0: And we see this in Kubernetes all the time, where a new version of Kubernetes comes out and something totally unexpected happens when it is ran at scale. Maybe it worked on 10 nodes, but when we fire up 1,000 nodes, what what happens then?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that actually brings up something that to me kind of defines cloud native as well. A lot of my definition of cloud native follows in suit with uh, Chris Nova's book, or Chris Nova, because your book was what uh, introduced me to the phrase cloud native. So it makes sense that your opinion informs my opinion. Um, but something that I think that we were just starting to talk about a little bit is also the concept of stability. Cloud-native applications and infrastructure means coding with instability in mind. It's not being guaranteed that your VM will li- lev- like live forever because it's on somebody else's hardware, right? Their hardware could go down. And so, like, what do you do? It has to move over really quickly, has to, like, figure out its, you know, have the guarantees of its API and its endpoints are all going to be the same no matter what. All of these things have to exist for the code or for your application to live in the in the cloud. And that's something that I find to be very fascinating. And like, that's something that really excites me is kind of not trying to make a barge, but rather trying to make a schooner when you're making an app. Something that can, instead of like taking over the waves, can be buffeted by the waves and still continue.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a little more reactive. And mm-hmm. I, think we, I think we see this in Kubernetes a lot. And when I interviewed Joe a couple of years ago, Joe Bita, for, for the book to get a quote from him, he said like, this magic phrase that has stuck with me over the past few years, which is goal-seeking behavior. And if you look at like, a Kubernetes object, they all use this concept in, in, in Go called embedding. And every Kubernetes object has a status and a spec. And all it is, is it's what's actually going on versus what did I tell it, uh, what do I want to go on? And then all we're doing is, just like you said with your analogy, is we're just trying to like, be reactive to that and build to that.
1: Yeah. And that's something I, I, I wonder if people don't think about a lot. They, don't, they think about the spec, but not the status part. And I think the, the status part is as important or more important maybe than the spec.
0: It totally is. Because, I mean, a status, like if, if you get, you know, if you have one potentiality for a status, your control loop's going to be relatively trivial. But mm-hmm. as, as you start understanding more of the problems that you can see and your code starts to mature and harden, those statuses get more complex and you get more edge cases and your code matures and your code hardens. And then we can take that globally in these larger cloud native patterns. It's really cool.
1: Yeah. So, Kralisa, so, you're a developer who's now just kind of getting into the uh, cloud native ecosystem. What are your right. thoughts on like developing with cloud native like practices in mind?
2: Not sure. I right, can answer that. Uh, when, I don't, when I started developing for Kubernetes, I was like, what is a pod? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what comes first? How does this all fit together? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I joined the project already in flight. I, I don't have to think about that. It's basically moving the project along. I don't have to think uh, what I have to do differently from the way I did things before. So.
3: Well, one thing that I think you probably ran into in working with the application is is the management of state and and how that relates to like where you know where you actually end up coupling that state. Like before in development, you might just assume that there is a a, a database somewhere that you would have to interact with, and that that database might you know is is a way of actually pushing that state off of your off of the code that you're actually going to work with. And in this way that you might think of, being able to write multiple consumers of state or multiple things that are going to mutate state and all share that same database. this is one of the patterns that comes up like all the time when we start talking about cloud native architectures is because we have to really be very careful about how we manage that state and and mainly because one of the other big benefits of it is the ability to horizontally scale things that are going to mutate or consume state and so can
2: you bring yeah, up? so my my brain is in its infancy and- as it relates to Kubernetes. All that I see is APIs all the way down. It's just APIs all the way down. It's not very different than, as a developer for me, it's not very much more complex than developing against a database that sits behind. But ask me again a year from now and I have a a more interesting uh, answer. So this is so fascinating, right?
0: I remember a couple of years ago when when like Kubernetes was first coming out and like listening to some of the original like quote unquote elders of Kubernetes and even some of the stuff that we were working on at the time. Uh, One of the things that they said was, we hope one day somebody sort of doesn't have to care about what's past these APIs and gets to look at Kubernetes as APIs only. And then to hear that like come from you authentically, it's like, hey, that's kind of our success statement there. We kind of nailed it.
2: It's really cool. Yep. Yeah, I, I understand that there are patterns and I probably should be more cognizant of what these patterns are, it, it, even to, if it's just to articulate them. But to me, my day-to-day challenge is understanding the API, understanding how, you know, what library code do I make to make this happen and how, you know, just, which is just programming one-on-one <laughs> almost. Not different from any other regular project.
1: Yeah. yeah. And that is something that's kind of nice about programming with Kubernetes in mind, because a lot of times you can use the source code as documentation. I hate to say that, particularly as like a non-developer. Like I'm I'm a sysadmin first getting into development and documentation is key in my mind. But there I've there's been more than a few times where I'm like, I need how do I do this? And you can look in the source code for pretty much any application that you're using that's like in Kubernetes or around the Kubernetes ecosystem. And the API for that application is there, and it'll tell you what you need to do, right? So it's like, oh, this is how you format your config file. Got it.
2: But at the same time, I don't want to minimize that knowing what the patterns are is very useful. I haven't had to do any design for, for Valero for our project. Maybe if I had, I would have to be forced to look into that. I'm still getting to know the code base and you know, developing features, but no major design that I had to leave at least. So I think with time, I will recognize those patterns and it will make it easier for me to understand what is happening. So, so, but what, what I was saying is that not understanding that the patterns that are behind the design of those APIs doesn't preclude me at all to code against it, against them. Mm-hmm.
0: I feel like this is like the heart of cloud native. Like I think we totally nailed it. The the heart of cloud native is in the APIs and your ability to interact with the APIs. And that's what makes it programmable. And that's what makes like gives you the interface for you and your software to interact with that.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. API first. Yeah. So on Kind of on the topic of cloud native, what about the cloud native computing foundation? So what what are our thoughts on the CNCF and like what is the CNCF? Josh, do you have any thoughts on that?
4: Yeah, so I, I haven't really been as close to the CNCF as I probably should, to be honest with you. But one of the great things that the CNCF has put together are programs around getting projects into this kind of, I don't know if you would call it vendor neutral type program, maybe somebody can correct me on that. But effectively, there's a lot of different categories like networking and storage and runtimes for containers and and things of that nature. And there's a really cool landscape that can show off a lot of these different technologies. A lot of the categories I'm guessing we'll be talking about on this podcast too, right? Things like what does it mean to do cloud native networking and, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of my purview of the CNCF. And of course, they put on KubeCon, which is the most important thing to me. Uh, but I'm sure someone else on this call can, can talk deeper at an organization level what they do.
0: I'm happy to jump in here. I've been working with them for, I think, three years now. So I think first, it's important to know that they are a subsidiary of the Linux Foundation. So the Linux Foundation is sort of the, the original open source nonprofit here. And then the CNCF is one of many, like Apache is another one um, that is underneath the broader Linux Foundation umbrella. And I think the whole point of the, or the CNCF is to sort of be this neutral party that can help us as we, as we start to grow and mature the ecosystem. Obviously, money is going to be involved here. Obviously, companies are going to be looking out for their best interest. And it makes sense to have somebody sort of managing uh, the software that is sort of outside or external of, of these uh, revenue-driven companies. And that's where I think the CNCF was sort of comes into play. And I think that's like its main responsibility is. You know, what happens when somebody from company A and somebody from company B disagree with the direction that the software should go? Uh, the CNCF can come in and say, hey, you know what, let's let's find a happy medium here. Let's find a solution that works for both folks and let's, let's try to do this the best we can. And I think a lot of this came from lessons we learned the hard way with Linux. So in a weird way, we, we kind of did. We are in version 2.0, but we, we were able to take advantage of some of the prior art here.
1: Um, Do you have any examples of a time when the CNCF jumped in and uh, mediated between two companies?
0: Yeah, so I think the steering committee, the Kubernetes steering committee is a great example of this. You know, uh, it's a relatively new thing. It hasn't been around for a very long time. And you look at the history of Kubernetes and, you know, we used to have this incubation process that has since been retired. And we've tried a lot of solutions and the CNCF has been pretty uh, instrumental in in guiding the shape of how we're going to manage solve governance for such a monolithic project as kubernetes grows like the problem space grows and more people get involved so we're having to come up with new ways of managing that and i think that's you know not necessarily a concrete example of two specific companies but i think that's more of a as people get involved we the things that used to work for us in the past are no longer working and the cncf is able to recognize that and guide us out of that
1: cool yeah that's actually a very good perspective uh, on the cncf that i didn't have before because like Josh, my perspective of the CNCF was, well, they put on that really cool party like three times a year.
2: I mean, they definitely are great at throwing parties. <laughs> <laughs> they are that. My yeah. perspective of the CNCF is uh, from participating in the Kubernetes meetup here in San Diego, and I, I am trying to revive our meetup. It's which is really hard to do, but different different topic. And I know that they, make, they try to make it easier for people to find meetups because they have on meetup.com, they have an organization. I don't know what the proper name is, but if you go there and you put your zip code, you'll find any meetup that's associated with them. So my, my meetup here in San Diego is associated, can be easily found. I know they, give, they, they try to give a little bit of money for swags so for you to give, give out at your meetup. They try. They offer help for finding speakers, and they also have a speaker catalog on their website. And so they they try to help in those ways, which I think is very helpful, very valuable.
3: Yeah, I agree. Like I I, I know from I know about the CNCF mostly just from interacting with folks who are working on its behalf. Um, so working at Leo. Like meeting a bunch of the people who are working on the Kubernetes project on behalf of uh, the CNCF, folks like Ihor and people like that, which are kind of all constantly amazing me with the amount of work that they do on behalf of the of the CNCF. I think it's been really good seeing sort of what it means to um, provide governance over a project, and I I think that that really highlights that's really highlighted by the way that Kubernetes itself Kubernetes itself is managed. I think a lot of us on the call have probably worked with OpenStack and kind of remember some of the crazy battles that went went on between vendors around particular components uh, in that stack, and seeing and uh, I've yet to actually really kind of see that level of, of of noise creep into the into the Kubernetes situation. And I think that that's I think that's kind of squarely on the CNCF around managing governance and also around the community for for just kind of. Making it making it extensible enough thing that you know people can plug into it without actually having to get into a battle about you know kind of taking co- taking ownership of CNI for example nobody should own CNI that should be its own project under its own governance and how you satisfy the needs for something like container networking should be a project that you develop as a company and you can make the very best one that you can make and you can attract as many customers to that as you want but fundamentally like the way that you the way that you your your interface to that major project should be something that is abstracted in such a way that, you know, it isn't, it isn't owned by any one company.
0: Yeah. There should be
1: a contract and an API, that sort of thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think the best analogy I ever heard was like, we're just building USB plugs.
1: That's actually really great. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
4: And to that point, Duffy, I think what's interesting is more and more companies are looking to the CNCF To determine what they're going to place their bets on from a technology perspective, right? Because they've been so burned historically from some project owned by one vendor, and they don't really know where it's going to end up and and so on and so forth. So it's really become a a very serious thing. uh, When people consider the technologies they are going to bet their business on. Yeah.
3: Yeah, when a project is absorbed into the CNCF or donated to the CNCF, I guess there are a number of projects that have, that this has happened to. Obviously, if you if you see that eye chart that is the CNCF landscape, there's just tons of things happening inside of there. It's a really interesting process, but I th- I think that like from my part, I remember recently seeing uh, Sysdig Falco show up in that in that list and seeing them uh, donate seeing Sysdig donate Falco to the CNCF. Was probably one of the first times that I've actually kind of like really tried to see what happens when that happens, and I think that some of the neat stuff here that happens is that now this is an open source project, and it's under the governance of the CNCF, and it feels to me more like an approachable project, right? Like I don't feel like I have to uh, deal with Sysdig directly to interact with Falco or to contribute to it it kind of opens that ecosystem up around this idea or the genesis of the idea that they built around Falco, which I think is really powerful. What do you all think of that?
0: I think, you know, to look at it from a sort of a different perspective, like that's one example of when the CNCF helps a project sort of liberate itself. But there's plenty of other examples out there where the CNCF is sort of an opt-in feature that is sort of only there if we need it. I think Cluster API, which I'm sure we're going to talk about this in a later episode, but I mean, just a quick overview is a lot of different vendors implementing the same API uh, and making that like composable and modular. But I mean, nowhere along the way in the history of that project has the CNCF had to come and step in. We've been able to sort of operate independently of that. And I think because the CNCF is even there, we all sort of are under this working agreement of we're going to take everybody's uh, concerns into consideration and we're going to take everybody's use cases into consideration and work together as an ecosystem. So I think it's it's just even having that in place, whether or not you use it or not, is a different story.
2: Do you all know any project under the CNCF? I have one.
1: Well, I've heard of this one. (laughs) It's called Kubernetes.
2: Is it called Kubernetes or Kubernetes?
1: It's called Kubernetes.
2: (laughs) Well, that's not what Duffy thinks.
1: (laughs) I don't say it that way. (laughs)
3: Now uh, it's been pretty fascinating seeing like the just the breadth of projects that are under there. In fact, I was just kind of recently noticing that OpenEBS is uh, is up for joining the the CNCF, and there seems to be like you know it's fascinating that like the things that are being donated to the CNCF and and kind of going through that life cycle as a project sometimes overlap with one another, and it's and it's very it seems like it's kind of a delicate balance that the CNCF would have to play to treat, to keep from Playing favorites, you know, because part of the charter of CNCF is to promote um, the project, right? And I, I'm always curious to see. I'm kind of fascinated to see how this plays out as we see projects that are are normally competitive with one another under the auspice of the same organization, like a CNCF. How do they play this in such a way that they they, they remain neutral? Even you know, it would, it would it seems like it would take a lot of intention. You know.
0: Yeah. Well, there, there's a difference between just being like a CNCF project and being like an official project or a graduated project. Like there's different tiers. For instance, Cubicorn, a tool that I wrote, uh, we just adopted the CNCF, like I think a uh, code of conduct and there was another file I had to include in the repo and poof, we're magically CNCF now. So it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of easy to get on board. And once you're on board, there's legal implications that come with that. But there totally is like this tier ladder stature that I'm not even super familiar with of like how officially CNCF you can be as your product grows and matures.
1: Yep. So what are what are some of the uh, code of conduct uh, that you have to do to be part of the CNCF?
0: There's a whole, there's a repo on it. I can maybe find it and add it to the notes after this, but there's like this whole like uh, tutorial that you can go through and it tells you everything you need to add and what the expectations are and what the implications are for everything. Awesome.
2: Well, Valero is the CNCF project and yeah. And we follow the, what is it? The covenants? Yeah. I what it is. The, yes. It, which is the same that Kubernetes follows. I'm not sure if there can be others that can be adopted, but this is definitely one.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. According to, uh, Aaron Krakenberger, who was the release lead for Kubernetes 114, the CNCF code of conduct can be, uh, summarized as don't be a jerk.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, there's, there's more to it than that, but like, yeah, I mean, I I think, and this is something that like that I remember seeing in open source, like my entire career, open source comes with this sort of implication of you need to be well rounded and polite and listen and be able to take others' thoughts and concerns into consideration. And I think we just are getting used to working like that as an engineering uh, industry.
1: Agreed. Yeah. Which is a great point. It's it's something that I, uh, hadn't really thought of like the kind of the idea of development back in the day, it seems like before there was such a thing as like the CNCF or like cloud native, it seemed like things were kind of combative or, you know, people would just like trying to push their agenda as much as possible, uh, kind of bully their way through. And that doesn't seem like that happens as much anymore. What do you guys have any thoughts on that? I do think you're kind of, uh, I think, I think what you're highlighting is uh, more the open source piece than the cloud native piece, which I,
3: you know, because I think that when you, when you're working, like open source, I think has been described a few times as kind of a force multiplier for software development and software adoption. And I think that these things are very true. Like if you look at a lot of the kind of like the big successful closed source projects, they they kind of have the way that, you know, people in this room and pe- maybe people listening to this podcast might perceive them is definitely just fundamentally differently than, than some open source project mainly because it feels like it's more of a kind of a community driven thing and it also feels like you're not in a place where you're beholden to a set of developers that you don't know that you that are not interested in your best in, in what's best for you or your organization to achieve whatever they set out to do with open source you can you can you can be a part of the voice of that project right you can, you can jump in and say you know it would be really great if this thing had this feature or i really like how you would do this thing you know and it really feels a lot more kind of interactive and inclusive.
0: And I think that that is a natural segue to um, sort of this like idea of we build everything behind the scenes and then, hey, it's this new open source project that everything is done. I don't really think that's open source. Like we see some of these open source projects out there. If you go look at the Git commit history, it's, it's all everybody from the same company or the same organization. And so to me, that's saying that while granted, the source code might be technically open source, the actual act of engineering and architecting the software is not done uh, as a group with multiple uh, buyers into it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great point.
3: Yeah, it's so one of the one of the things I really appreciated about uh, Heptio actually is that all of the projects that we developed there were uh, that the developer chat for that was all kept in some neutral space like the like the Kubernetes Slack, which I thought was really powerful. Because it means that like not only is it open source and you can contribute code to a project, but if you want to talk to people who are also being paid to develop that project, you can just go to the channel and talk to them right yeah. it, like it's it's more than open source, it's open community. It's like I thought that was really great.
0: Yeah, that's a really great way of
2: putting it. With that said, though, I hate to be a party pooper, but I think we need to say goodbye.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: yeah, I think we should wrap it up. yeah I would like to reemphasize that you can go to our to the issues list and add requests for what you want us to talk about.
3: And we and should also can... probably link our HackMD from there so that if you want to comment on something that we talked about during this episode, feel free to leave comments in it and we'll try to revisit those comments maybe in our next episode.
2: Exactly, that's a good point. We will drop a link to the HackMD page on the corresponding issue. So there is going to be an issue for each episode. So just look for that. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining everyone. All right. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here.
3: Hope you enjoyed the episode and I look forward to a bunch more.
2: Thank you for listening to the Podlets Cloud Native Podcast. Find us on Twitter
0: at the Podlets and on the Podlets.io website. That is ThePodlets all together, where you'll find transcripts and show notes. We'll be back next week. Stay tuned by subscribing.